0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. Lord, in our Psalm today in Psalm 56, David himself lifts up his praises to you upon deliverance from his enemies. And Lord, we can join the chorus of worship that the great King of Israel offered for the salvation of a great from a greater enemy still. Lord, the judgment that our sin deserved has received, Lord, just payment. On Christ's broken and bleeding body, his back bore the weight of our transgressions. And so this morning, as we lift up our praise unto you, we do so, Lord, recognizing the salvation that's greatest of all. I pray, Lord, as we now open your scriptures and see what is there contained, Lord, prefigured and prophesied and laid down from of old and manifest in the fullness of time in Jesus Christ, that our heart, Lord, would be drawn with deeper commitment and affections and our will, Lord, would be moved by decision and obedience to put into practice the glorious things of your great gospel, Lord. And that our words and our lips would be uh, shaped, Father, for the proclamation of the authority, the rule and reign and the glories of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would Use the proclamation of your word, God, in the delivery and the hearing so that Christ alone is glorified and your people are equipped for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God, what a glorious opportunity to open up the scriptures together this morning and to spend some time meditating on Psalm chapter 56. So turn with me to Psalm 56 if you would. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. While you're turning there, the title of this morning's message is In God We Trust. You'll recognize those words maybe more readily from the money that we carry around in our pockets than from Psalm 56, perhaps. Yet these these words long preceded the minting of the means of exchange that we use in our nation. They're written down thousands of years ago. They appear in the form of... In God I trust by the words of David in Psalm 56, verse 4, and also verses 10 and 11. These words form in part the chorus of this glorious worship song that comes to us in the context of adversity and salvation. So with that in mind, let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. And let's follow along as I read Psalm 56. The title of this morning's psalm is to the choir master, according to the dove on far off Terebinths, a Mictom of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me, all day long an attacker oppresses me, my enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crimes will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Minted on the coins of the United States of America, the phrase is appearing and reappearing in our experience every time we pull out a hundred dollar bill or a quarter in God we trust those words are usually emblazoned next to images of historical import that appear on our money as you recall you'll have a picture of Benjamin Franklin and then that motto in God we trust this phrase has biblical content and this sermon this morning I submit to you could well serve to underscore that our nation's motto need not be an empty phrase I'm afraid it is not worth much these days as far as the recollection or the weight that of thought and association that the average citizen places behind those words I'm sure they're so common that they're trivial to us now however the biblical context of the confession of confidence in God I trust or in God we trust Harkens back to a great kingly leader of a great nation, a monarch and magistrate, David himself, who was king of the nation of Israel, who poetically proclaims the substance of security in Christ that's summarized in the phrase "In God I trust," in Psalm 56. If you think of the separation of church, or if you think the separation of church and state and secular pagans, uh, the, really the uh, secular mongers of today who would like to remove every ode in the public sphere and every testimony in the in the corporate environment of our nation that even nods or pays a little bit of honor or homage to the Lord. If if you think that they are upset now with the way this phrase appears on our text, imagine how they would how mad they would be when uh, they if they could see the weight and true meaning behind that phrase in God. We trust. Right now it seems that all the pagans and the secularists and the postmodernists are protesting is the dilapidated window dressing of a bygone era. Imagine if that phrase carried with it the force and weight that it carried for David. Psalm 56 in this sense provides a call for repentance for this nation, for the United States of America. David himself would say, how dare you? Have in God we trust on your money and walk around as hypocrites, trusting in your war machine, chariots and horses, demagogues, politicians, the next presidential candidate, uh, bodies that meet together, think tanks, global congresses, United Nations, any number of agencies. The alphabet has uh, has been absolutely shredded and put together in so many acronyms because we do not trust the Lord. We trust the USDA, the FDA, the CIA, the FBI, and a million other acronyms representing human bodies and means to try to keep us safe, to try to provide for our needs, to try to give us salvation, to try to give us security. Truly, as we look across the landscape of what we place faith in, in this nation, we have a million idols, and yet we still have hypocritically on the denominations of money in our pocket in God we trust. So long as we remain complicit with an apostate culture, every coin in our pocket condemns us. The witness against us uh, is carried around and used every day virtually by all Americans that we despise in our forwardness who truly is Lord and God and the authority upon which every sound nation is built. Blessed, after all, the word of God declares is the nation whose God is the Lord. This testimony of our own condemnation shouts from the relics of our nation's past and calls us back to our oaths and vows. David says in Psalm 56, 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. There are oaths and vows and commitments that are associated with the foundation of even our social contracts, our relationships as a society, and they go back to a historical point in time far more Christian than our own. We must ask ourselves this day if we are in good standing with those oaths and vows, or if we as a society have room for repentance. Let us learn our lesson from the great King David, the great vow keeper. Speaking from a human sense, David himself knew how to make a vow, and he knew how to keep one. And if he hadn't kept his vows, the psalter would be much shorter. Many of the songs that David offers as worship to the Lord are, in fact, a fulfillment of a promise he made. He knows that the Lord of glory is well-deserving of his offering when his prayer is answered with a great salvation from the enemies all around. In Psalm 56, We have the second of the miktoms of the Psalter. At least the miktoms that are listed as such in their title. That word's a little mysterious to us. We're not sure what it means. Probably the uh, commentators tell us a musical designation. It's a kind of song, that is to say. But Psalm 16 was the first miktom, and this is the second in the Psalter. And there's a few of them now in a row, making six total. Psalm 16 and then 56 through 60. One thing you will find is a pattern in these psalms. Like our text today, each one contains elements, three in fact, at least in my own study, that I think come to the fore, adversity, victory, and vows. There is a vow to worship the Lord upon His bringing victory to His people through and in spite of adversity. This is a worthy cause for worship. This is the time where we ought to return to our confession of worship and praise to Almighty God when He has shown us by His strong and mighty arm His great salvation. As we think about this in introduction to our text today, think about how much greater of occasion we have as blood-bought believers having realized the finished work of Christ than even David himself had. In one sense, with the fullness of revelation, The enemies that are obviously defeated, sin, death, hell, the grave, all of these are occasion for greater worship. Each one of us should be a psalmist, if you will, bringing our songs before the Lord, our hymns of praise, making great use of this book right here as worthy cause for meditation and prayer and praise, offering to the Lord a worthy offering for what He has done on our behalf saving us from the world, the flesh, the devil, and hell itself. Let us consider this morning Psalm 56 by three categories, if you'll allow me this morning. Those three categories are the following, the historical context, first of all, context, secondly, content, the psalm, its content itself, and thirdly, chorus, an aspect of the psalm, a refrain that is repeated. Again, three categories for consideration in Psalm 56, first context, second content, and third chorus. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel 21, to the historical context that I think is the background, Uh, it's fairly safe to say, for the authorship of this psalm. What was happening in David's life that inspired him to write Psalm 56? Well, I believe much of that is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of the title of our text today. To the choir master, according to the dove on the far off terebinths. Now, the language is a little uh, curious. You might remi- remember from our psalm last month and our message on the same, that David uh, imagines himself on the wings of a dove flying away and being at rest in Psalm 55, verse 6. When David, uh, in, this, in these occasions, when he means to poetically illustrate safety, from the enemies that surround him. He does so sometimes appealing to the imagery of nature. A dove or a bird has the freedom to take wings and flight and to move beyond the place of storm or adversity or predators and to go to a strong place of safety and refuge. The terebinth tree would represent this. In the far southeast corner, I'm told, of Palestine, you'll find commonly these terebinth trees at the time when David was writing. It says, David, it's as if David imagines that the Spirit allows him the ability to take wings and to go to a distant place to be safe from the adversity that surrounds him. What was so threatening and why was David feeling this way? Well, the answer to that question comes again in the context of our title, which is picked up in 1 Samuel 21. We find that this is a miktam of David in Psalm 56, when the Philistines seized him at Gath. So let's pick up on the story in 1 Samuel 21.10. The scriptures say, And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? 22.1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Under the context or the historical occasion for the authorship of Psalm 56, first of all, I have this term as a heading for, those, for that chapter in the story, mockery. David is being mocked because he's acting the fool. He's pretending he's feigning madness so that he might escape his enemies. It says in the text of Psalm 21 that he is very afraid of them. He is vulnerable and in a place of weakness. Right now he's a fugitive. He's faced with enemies within his nation as Saul and his minions are chasing him. And of course, wherever he would want to go to hide, he's faced enemies there as well. David is infamous among the peoples that surround him. After all, he's slain Goliath as perhaps just a shepherd boy, certainly with inferior means. With just a sling and a stone, he took down the greatest uh, uh, warrior that the enemy armies could boast. Goliath, some nine cubits tall or whatever he was, towering over David, no doubt, towering over everyone, no doubt, was slain by the hand of this shepherd boy. Well, the, uh, the accolades of the people and the worship or the praise, I should say, that was offered unto him immediately spontaneously erupted. They sang, David has slain his, thou, or his ten thousands, while Saul, our great king, who himself was head and shoulders above the rest of the people, an impressive figure himself, has merely slain thousands. So the people saw at one time David as a superior war hero. Perhaps they placed hope in him as someone who could deliver them from the Philistines. Well, the tables have certainly turned, have they not? Now David himself is delivered into the hands of these very Philistines. And instead of showing the superior ability to understand God's holy word and uh, to act according to those principles, he is certainly in a humble place indeed where he turns, in this case, to a scheme to get himself out of a jam and begins to pretend that he is mad. And he spits and it falls down his beard and he claws on things and mutters incomprehensible speech. In this way, he becomes the butt of the Philistine jokes. The enemies of God's people now are making fun of the future king. His enemies uh, uh, represented in this text dismiss him as deranged. And this is the historical background with which uh, Psalm 56 was penned, the first chapter anyway, mockery. Now, as we begin to move through Psalm 56, we see that there's an escalation of hope. At first, David says in verses 1 through 3 that he is trampled upon, for instance, well cover that in more depth in a moment. In the second section, after the first chorus, he talks about his tossings or wanderings in verse 8. In the third section, he says that God has kept his feet from falling. So you see that there's an escalation here. David goes from being oppressed and trampled upon to being sure-footed and immovable, trusting in God, and being utterly secure. Well this pattern in Psalm fifty six is echoed by the context of David's um, of, of David's experience in Psalm or in 1 Samuel 21. First of all, as David poetically describes in Psalm fifty six as being trampled upon, David is mocked, belittled, and humiliated before his enemies. But secondly, there's Uh, the next chapter, and this is where I use the word magistrate. We go from mockery to magistrate. Uh, David begins to show himself to be a leader in the very next chapter. No doubt, being very discouraged, dispirited, and humiliated, David runs from the uh, company of the Philistines. He departs from there and escapes to a cave in Adullam. Now a cave is hardly a palace, A cave is hardly a victory parade where everyone celebrates your exploits. A cave is some place you go when you are on the run, or if you are so poor you have no place to dwell. Much like Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who was Lord and King of glory, at one point in his ministry had no place to lay his head. So prefiguring Christ, now David, who is the anointed king, the greatest human king of all Israel, had no place to lay his head. Faced by adversity and hardship all around, he was now taking refuge in a cave in Adullam. Yet his kingship and leadership was beginning to unfold and be made manifest. Notice what happens. In his uh, exile, God begins to bring to him certain parties. In verse 1, David escapes to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. David, at this point, is reunited with his family. In his exile, in the grace of God, beginning to answer his prayer, he is brought in contact with his brothers and his father's house once again. You can imagine how that would have warmed his heart and been an answer to this man's prayer. But more happens. Verse 2, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. David begins to assemble for himself, I should say, God begins to sovereignly assemble at the cave of Adullam, a group of faithful followers, servants and citizens for David, warriors in his army, in fact. It says, he became captain over them and there were with him about 400 men. These were the least of these, if you will. Again, recall the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was the sick It was the deranged whom he delivered from evil spirits. It was the famished whom he fed in the wilderness. It was the poor and destitute that followed Christ. He was in the wilderness rejected by the elites, by the religious leaders, by the rich and the famous. But he was followed by those who were willing to see the poor in spirit that they had nothing to lose to follow this man who was their savior in the wilderness. Something similar to what is happening in David's life at this time. David is now reunited with his family and he is surrounded in this community of perils, if you will, to borrow language from our own early American founding, by citizens who have been abused and now find in David a haven of leadership. So far in this reconstitution of society, we have a king, a family, and citizens. Now a prophet is going to arrive. Verse 4, and he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So David's still in the stronghold. Notice verse 5. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. David has a prophet of God with him. Saul was judged by God at this time Saul was himself out of his mind. David was feigning madness, Saul was insane for real. Saul had no voice from God through his prophets to direct him, instead he was left to his own devices, he was beginning to unravel following his own inclination to sinful depravity. David, under adverse and harsh circumstances that you would think would drive any man insane, has the privilege of a personal visitation from a prophet of God in Gad while he is in a cave hiding from enemies on the periphery, on the borders of Israel, and enemies within. God is preserving David. God is saving and sustaining him in the wilderness. And more than that, I submit to you that God is rebuilding Israel, the nation of Israel, at this time. So far we have a king, a family, citizens and an army, a prophet, and finally there is a priest that joins David. You remember the context of a prior psalm in Psalm 52 where David laments the circumstances where an entire community of priests is slain. But in the and Doeg was the the title of that message was David versus Doeg. Doeg was the uh, the Judas type who betrayed this community of priests, and all of them were killed except by God's sovereignty one who, in His providence, joined David. It says in First Samuel twenty two twenty. But one of the sons of Amalek, the son of Ahidab, named Abithar, Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Now, this is a key verse. Highlight this at least in your mind, if you would, in 1 Samuel twenty-two, twenty-three, 23. Listen to what David says. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Doesn't that seem like an audacious statement? David is promising security for this defecting priest. How could he do so? Well, because he has gone to the Lord in prayer and in worship. He has cried out in Psalm 56, Be gracious to me, O God for man tramples on me, and he's begun to see how God is answering that prayer. How has God been gracious to David? He's reunited him with his family. He's reminded him that he is king and leader of a future nation. He has given him faithful, loyal warriors, and these men proved to be David's right-hand men par excellence. Later, they would risk their very lives to go get a single cup of water for him behind enemy lines. Better to have a few hundred men like this than thousands and thousands of a paid mercenary force who would turn on you and betray you at the highest bidder. David was being blessed by God's almighty hand. The gracious hand of God had not only given him this, but he had supplied him with a prophet to speak God's word in this time of peril, to draw his attention to the covenants that God made with him that could not be broken. Saul could be broken. Saul was already broken indeed in his mind, and Saul would soon die and by, God's judgmental, by God's judgment by the sword in a battle skirmish not too far in the distance. Our sovereign Lord knew exactly what would happen and was providing for David reassurance in the wilderness that he was safely in his hands. And also there was a priest then that joined them as well. So now worship, and so, uh, was, worship was being reinstituted there was order and law that was taking place. Families were beginning to be reconciled and God was rebuilding his nation. Now the case for this, I got primarily from a book by Joel McDermott. It's called In the Midst of Enemies and it's a commentary on 1 Samuel. He has one chapter or section title called the following, The Great National and Conciliar Convention of Adullam. The Great National and conciliar convention of Adullam. Conciliar means council of important, significant, indispensable people. And of course, great great national means that this was was a great moment or it was a significant, prominent, historical moment for the nation state of Israel. McDermott goes on to make the case that Israel was reconciled and rebuilt as a nation beginning in this cave in Adullam. God does great things in the day of small beginnings. When we are exiled, surrounded by enemies, and discouraged, and in the gross minority, these are the very conditions under which God oftentimes, according to the pattern laid out with his people in Deuteronomy 7, is pleased to answer prayer in surprising ways. Those ways are surprising in that we look at the circumstances and we don't think that we're great triumphant war heroes yet. But as we stand back and see the salvation of the Lord, as we see Him fight for us, and as we see Him take the widow's two mites as it were and multiply them, or the fishes and loaves, and multiply them, as we see how God takes an insignificant wayward people and uses them to proclaim His great law and word uh, Shining forth to all the nations through the ministrations of Aaron as high priest and Moses as the leader of God's people. It is amazing what God can do. In the end, he alone is glorified. This is the context and historical background of Psalm 56. I told you there's an escalation here. It goes from mockery to magistrate to military campaign. If we read on, we don't have much time to touch on it this morning, but in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, you'll see that suddenly there is a a, a question that arises uh, that David brings before the Lord. Well, I can't resist, but read a few verses. Now, when they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are robbing and threshing floors, verse 2, 1 Samuel 23, therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? Think of the audacity of that question. I mean, just likely days before, he had pretended to be insane, to be mentally retarded, spitting down his beard and uttering things nonsensical so that he could escape from the clutches of this enemy. And now David is asking the Lord, hey, I got a few hundred guys. Should I go fight these people? The Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? Verse four, what does David do? He inquires of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Kaliah, For I will give the Philistines into your hand. David and his men went, to Kilah, and they fought with the Philistines and brought brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kilah. David goes from being mocked to being a leader and a magistrate of a small band to a successful military campaign in that short amount of time, just a matter of days. Suddenly, David is defeating the enemies he has just escaped by pretending to be insane. And he's done it with this motley crew of misfits, that would-be vigilantes. And now, with this ragtag bunch, David is their king, his family there, a prophet and a priest. God's anointed David is head of a new nation. This is the context and background of Psalm 56. Now getting back to the content this morning, the second major point we see that the escalation and the encouraging confidence that David sings of in this psalm actually paralleled his life experiences at the time. Reading again, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long and attacker oppresses me. My enemy tramples on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. This section could serve perhaps as the affidavit. David brings a sworn testimony as a witness against those who are at war with God's anointed. He bears the truth before the court of glory. This is my testimony. But notice as he approaches the judge, the first basis of his appeal isn't, this isn't fair. These guys have no standing. I'm about to be killed. You said you would do this. Uh, I... I'm angry and upset and disillusioned. The first phrase out of David's mouth is an appeal to grace. He says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. David well knows this profound and timeless spiritual truth that any appeal for salvation is ultimately based on grace alone. David is making his appeal not as one who deserves it, a one who is desperately in need for God to give the unmerited favor. Not by David's works uh, uh, is he pleading that God would intervene, but instead for God's great namesake. God, glorify yourself in making good on your promise to anoint me as magistrate and leader and conqueror for your great name by giving me grace, by encouraging me and enabling me to oppose the attacker, and the oppressor who is trampling me this day. David bases his appeal on grace alone. Hope of salvation is found here and only here. Note there is an escalating tone, and the thread of parallelism is signaled by this word, trampled. First of all, David says that his plight could be well described poetically as being stomped upon, ground under the heel of those his enemies. Nevertheless under these conditions David says I put my trust in you I'd like to remind you of that key verse I pointed out in 1 Samuel 22:23 David says to his people gathered around him Stay with me do not be afraid for he who seeks my life seeks your life With me you shall be in safe keeping How could David say that with confidence? The answer I submit to you is because he had already gone to the Lord in song and in prayer, and he had heard God say in as many words that same message to him. David says, verse three, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. In other words, if you heard God say to you through his word, stay with me, imagine this, God to David, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. In other words, David, my, the, my enemies are your enemies. With me you shall be in safe keeping. If you, saint, are opposed by God's enemies, And you run to him in prayer. Is he not strong enough to vanquish his foes and in so doing earn your salvation, secure your safekeeping? Absolutely. David can say, You are safe with me because he knows he is safe with God. This is the chain of godly leadership, this is the authority flow of biblical order. You see it, do you not, in First Samuel 21 and 23, specifically before David goes on his military conquest. He seeks the Lord. God gives him the assurance he is on solid footing in his endeavor. He makes plans in his campaign and pitches it to his warriors, and they go out, and they are successful. Ultimately, is it David and his mighty men who are successful? No, it is the Lord's plan worked out through his agent, and David re- deferring to God's authority that is the basis of order and safety, the basis of salvation. Think again in our society, brothers and sisters. We live in a nation that's never been stronger by technological measures. We live in a nation that's never been more secure by money and means to protect our lives and lifestyles from invaders without. Yet is there fear rampant in the streets of America today? You better believe it. Gun sales double and triple. The other day I read that California purchased more guns than Texas in the wake of what? San Bernardino shooting. Remember the uh, Islamic extremists, they go in with their guns blazing. They interrupt this uh, uh, Christmas party at this place of employment. And all of a sudden, what does everyone do? Do they run to Psalm 56? Well, I submit to you, almost nobody does anymore. They run to the gun store. Now, it's not wrong to protect ourselves, but it's certainly wrong to trust in chariots, horses, guns, war, implements of war, anything else, without trusting the God of of all circumstances, all governments, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. David understood this principle and he modeled it. Psalm 56 is a weapon. Psalm 56 is a a, self-defense tool for us. And in fact, the sword on our hip, the gun in our pocket, the uh, uh, standing army, our ICBMs, our aircraft carriers are nothing if indeed they aren't backed with the assurance that we are in good standing with the Lord. What has the Lord done all through history? He's used the very tools of man's self-aggrandizement as the instruments of their own judgment. So the bigger the army and the enemy gets as they worship themselves, or the, the enemy of God and their, his army gets as they begin to worship themselves, those very implements of war are turned uh, on, they turn man against man. However, if we stand with the Lord, we may have very little by way of means to protect ourselves. We may be a very small band indeed. But if we stay with the Lord, we not, need not be afraid. For he who seeks our life is an enemy of God, and with him we shall be in safe keeping. Secondly, under content, that first section, if it were the affidavit that David brings, the second perhaps could be the warrant. Warrant being that signed statement where the authority sees you have a case and they now write it down and they issue a proclamation. That the enemy against you has committed an injustice and he must face uh, the courts. In verse 5, we'll leave the chorus aside for a moment and skip to verse 5. All day long, they injure my cause. Another way of saying that could be twist my words. They try to undo through guerrilla warfare, uh, you could say. They try to trip me up at every turn. David is lamenting his condition all their thoughts are against me for evil they speaking of his enemies stir up strife they lurk they watch my steps and notice he is referred to being uh, trampled on before but now and as he's escaping running away uh, he declares that the enemy is calculating his steps they have their spies they're watching his movements they're seeking him out they're trying to find where he resides As they waited for my life, he says in verse 6b. Now verse 7, for their crime, will they escape? Will they get away with this scot-free, O Lord? David uh, makes a request, in wrath, in your judgment. David makes an appeal to the nature of God that is rooted in his justice, his wrath. He says, cast down the peoples, O God. That would be those who have organized themselves as imperial forces against the Lord. The Philistines or Saul and his armies, it could be. Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. A better word there in my studies might be wanderings. You have kept count of my wanderings, uh, my, the, my vagabond status, my uh, uh, fugitive life, my running from this place and that because I'm being threatened. You have kept count of those. And notice these two phrases in verse 8. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemy will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Now there, those two phrases, "tears in a bottle, are they not in your book are very important indeed. Now up to this point, it seems like David's suffering has been a frantic and unnecessary, um, evil, or an unnecessary condition that is simply there because of the presence of his enemies. But what he acknowledges in verse 8 is that every time he's run away and every tear that he's cried, every bit of sorrow that the enemy has caused has been duly recorded by the omniscient God of glory who is perfectly just and keeps perfect records and will punish the wicked one and no one will escape unless they find redemption in Christ's blood. David is seeing that his tears have not gone gone unheeded. He's recognizing that his prayers and his laments have been recorded. If you go back to the context of the culture, uh, a leather bottle or a pouch with which to store wine is what's in view here, that David imagines God has a pouch by which to uh, retain precious liquid. And in a similar way, a book would be a very expensive thing indeed. Paper was not readily available. And it would only be uh, those who could afford it. And then what would be written down on paper would be of utmost importance. David uses these imageries that refer to expensive implements of things that are of high value. Of the preservation of fine wine. Or the recordation of important information in a book. He uses that imagery... To remind himself that everything that he has endured, God has kept perfect records of it. And like Paul says in Romans 8.31, he confesses, If God is for him, then who can be against him? This I know, that God is for me. This is the warrant section. David has gone from uh, lament for being trampled to noting that God is keeping track of his tossings and wanderings. And thirdly, under content, there is a votive offering. Votive is the adjective form of vow. An offering to the Lord or a praise to the Lord that is also a vow. This is in verses 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This votive offering or this commitment to bring his praise before the Lord is an expression, it's a vow of religious devotion. David, as I mentioned before, is a great example of one who keeps his vows. Though he was, yes, in fact, a sinner, and our mind often jumps to the vows that he broke with respect to the Uriah incident. Nevertheless, David, when walking in the Spirit, exhibited a great example of worship that is worthy of the Lord when He intervenes on our behalf. These Psalms, like Psalm 56, they are promises kept. They are promises of praise that David committed to offer And this is the sense of votive offering or or a sacrifice and a vow that David committed and promised to bring the Lord. And at this moment he is offering it presumably because the Lord has answered his prayer as we have read in 1 Samuel 21-23. through Think about that for a moment and apply it to our context this day. If David being saved from the enemies, the Philistines, being rescued time and again from Saul's hand, if that salvation was worthy of a song of worship offered to the Lord, how much greater our salvation. There is in Psalm 56, and in fact in many of the Psalms, a great pattern for worship. When we come before the Lord and we worship Him as a people, as we introduce these services with praise and glory and song and uh, offering in music unto Him. Have you ever considered considered it as a votive offering? I am fulfilling my vow or my commitment to praise the Lord because He has saved me. Anyone who has been ransomed from hell and from judgment do his own sin keeps his vows of praise and worship before the Lord when he worships together with the people of God. Psalm 56 is a great pattern for us who have been saved from even greater foes, to look to, to undergird, provide a philosophy for, if you will, of our praise and worship to the God who is so glorious and so worthy of our affections. Final point this morning, chorus. We've considered or we, two categories so far for consideration in Psalm 56. First, the context. Secondly, the content. And thirdly, let's consider the chorus. Verse 4 and verses 10 and 11 are repeated like a refrain or a chorus in this psalm. And then we'll close with a repeat of the chorus in the New Testament. First of all, 56.4, David sings, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid what can flesh do to me later he says in verse 10 in God whose word I praise and the Lord whose word I praise in God I trust I shall not be afraid what can man do to me imagine David with 300 strong marching against an army of Philistines to ambush to get the element of surprise yet likely uh, facing thousands and thousands of warriors. Imagine that scene. You're a vagabond. Uh, you're just uh, somebody who owes a lot on, by, uh, of taxes due to Saul's confiscatory system. Maybe you're tired of the slavery and hard labor and you simply run away. You finally find refuge in a cave with a new leader. He seeks the Lord and decides that you're going to go on a military campaign against one of the strongest enemies, most warlike people in all of the region, boasting thousands, and you just have a band of misfits of several hundred. What would you do to prepare yourself for that kind of battle? Would you sharpen your sword? Would you uh, strengthen yourself by going through military exercises and strategy? Well, I'm sure there would be some degree of that, but you have to consider any physical preparation under those kind of odds, would seem uh, almost entirely futile, would it not? Well, let me tell you what you do to prepare for that situation. You sing these words. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This I know that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I imagine battle hymns containing these words being sung by David's mighty men as they marched forward to meet the enemy. First of all, notice in this chorus that David's uh, praises God's word. It is so important to remember that adversity is never a cause to doubt the word of God. In fact, adversity is the time where the word of God shines more brightly than ever because the eternal, immutable principles of God's uh, holiness, of God's promises, of God's standards of righteousness are put to the test and proven just and sound and true, enduring and powerful every time. David, when he is in the thick of his trial confesses in God whose word I praise. How many of you have heard and how many of you have been susceptible to doubting the word of God in times of great adversity? Just when your expectations have been dealt a fatal blow, when things happen that you didn't expect. When the thing that you prayed for now, you have to trust God's providence because it wasn't answered the way you had hoped. And when it seems your closest of friends have betrayed you, as David experienced time and again, what are you tempted to do in those moments? Are you tempted to leave the moorings of your faith, to become apostate, to distance yourself? Well, I'm not so sure about the authority, the sufficiency, and the security of God's word, or do you do the exact opposite, to run towards your only refuge and haven? Often in our short-sightedness, in our unbelief, and our waywardness and sin, often we misinterpret evidence of truth as cause for doubt. Think of David's situation in the cave. Through one perspective, God had reconstituted the nation by bringing him. uh, by bringing him a prophet and a priest, mighty men, and his family. That's from one perspective. You could sit in that cave and see, look what God has done, and be greatly encouraged, testimony to the assurance of God's promise. Or, from a different perspective, you could look at those circumstances and say, oh, thanks a lot, God, now i got 300 mouths to feed of uh, all of these outlaws. Um, yeah, I have my family, but here we are sleeping on the floor of a cold cave in the wilderness. Uh, sure, a prophet ha- has come to speak to me God's word, but uh, how much good is it going to do when I'm surrounded by thousands and thousands of enemies? Oh yeah, a priest has come and perhaps he can intercede to the Lord for me, just like the 70 others that got slaughtered by my enemy. Yeah, right. It's just a matter of time before he is killed as well. Do you see? There are two different perspectives that you could have analyzed those circumstances. One governed by the Spirit and God's promises, the other one governed by short-sighted unbelief. And in fact, the evidence of the truth of God's promises was available for David to see. And how did he recognize it? He recognized it by setting his fear his concerns, and his discouragement and proper orientation with the Lord by praise and prayer, remembering his promises and commitments, and singing out worship to the Lord along the lines of Psalm 56. We are called to do the same. Praise the name of the Lord in adverse circumstances. Exalt and trust in and magnify and extol what God has spoken. Do not doubt or shrink back from his promises when you need them most secondly under chorus there's two terms that are used in parallel ways in verse 4 and verse 11. notice david says verse 4 in god i trust i shall not be afraid what can flesh do to me the term uh, that parallels that is in verse 11 in god i trust i shall not be afraid what can man do to me david means to draw bring out a distinction between the character of God as creator and the character or the nature, the ontology if you will, of men, mere men as creation and just created beings. When you are aligned with the creator, should you ever fear the creature? God forbid. If you fear the creature more than the creator, what position are you in? You're in the Romans one position. Worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You can do this by fear. If you, in your terror, consider uh, uh, physical enemies and human enemies more powerful than God himself, what have you done? You've exalted on the altar of omnipotence a mere creature and you've denied the creator. Remember the distinction. Every one of your physical enemies takes his next breath at the mercy of an almighty God who in a moment may require it of them and they will stand before the judgment seat as they die and God finally kills them in his justice. Or God could bring them to their knees in a moment of repentance. As we go back to Genesis 6.13, these two Hebrew words, basar and adam, Uh, It sounds familiar, right? Adam, meaning man, basar, meaning flesh. These two Hebrew words appear in Genesis 6.13. The parallel is here as well. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end for all flesh, basar. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. He said that though these men, just like in David's day, had displayed violence, God will destroy them uh, with the earth. And then there's instructions to make an ark, and there's also the reassurance of covenant. In this section, the term flesh is used, and, um, and it coincides with, with the parallel man as well. Uh, for instance, in verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So just like Genesis 6.13, 6, though the world was wicked it had been saturated with evil and it seemed that people were sinning and getting away with it, the perspective of the situation was brought to bear by distinguishing between what is merely creature and god so david draws on the same distinctions what can man mere man do to me what can flesh do to me if we go back to genesis 6:13 you know the story what follows this proclamation the flood waters rise until they're 15 cubits above the tallest mountain What man could stop those waters? What if he were to throw sandbags around his house? What if he were to bail out his boat? What if he were to swim with all his might? Sooner or later, in the chaotic event of God's judgment, there is not a soul, not anyone of flesh, no man that can stay the hand of God. What is flesh? What is man to face God and to oppose him? This I know that God is for me. David recognizes that the same power that could send a global flood to eliminate in 40 days of rain all of his enemies is aligned with him and will destroy his enemies if it pleases him to do so. Therefore, he can say, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid, what can man do to me? In closing this morning, this chorus reappears in the New Testament. Turn with me to Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, there's a citation of Psalm 56. You'll remember some of the context of Hebrews that we've touched on in our recent series here. And the context is not without its own adversity, trials, and challenges. There are those who are being arrested for their faith. It seems that a movement among The powers that be to persecute the church is growing. And yet there is a call from the author of Hebrews unto faithfulness, assurance, salvation, and fearless obedience to the Lord. And as he's closing this book, he says things like the following in verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Citing uh, citing Psalm 56.4, 10 and 11. Goes on in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. There's your votive offering, if you will. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Therefore, we see the application of Psalm 56 in New Testament context. Though persecution and adversity is still here, like the pattern of the Old Testament Mictoms, adversity and vow, there is also victory And the victory in the New Testament that is assured in Jesus Christ so far eclipses that which David experienced in his war campaigns that it hardly can be compared to it. Jesus Christ, who suffered, who was humiliated, who went outside the camp for our sake, who is made of no esteem, whose visage was marred beyond that of any man, went forward uh, for us through the veil so that we might have an anchor line to the presence chamber of Almighty God, as we have read. When we think about these things, that the greatest of all military campaigns was successful through the Son of Man and Son of God laying down His life, what have we to fear? What have we to fear? Through Him, then, let us continually offer up our sacrifices of praise to God. Even if the holiness of our Christian life requires us to be counterculture by every measure, holding marriage in honor, uh, for example, and so that it is not defiled, though the world tells us we're stupid and archaic and, and, and even uh, prejudiced for doing so when our nation wants to redefine it. When we, like verse 3, uh, put ourselves in peril on account of others who are in harm's way, remembering those who are in prison, we can do that confidently when we say with the psalmist, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus For the joy set before Him endured the cross, and we, for the joy set before us, assured by that same cross, can endure the sufferings that He has prepared for us to manifest ultimately His overcoming glory. Let us close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the reassuring standard of Scripture. We're thankful that it is an anchor, a foundation, a place, Lord Jesus, upon which we can build our assurance, our obedience, our faithfulness unto you. We thank you that all of this is possible because of the death of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our great king, our great priest, all those roles we saw in First Samuel are one and the same in Jesus Christ. And because, Jesus, you went before outside the camp suffering on our behalf, we have the assurance that every last enemy has been defeated. I pray that you would give us grace to live with this kind of confidence, this kind of encouragement, and this kind of joy, that we would confess with the psalmist, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So that we might repent, Lord, and no longer will it be an empty phrase, but instead a model for our lives lived, in God we trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.